I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the fascinating world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a voyage of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and roaming the river with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where's the river guiding us today, Mel? Well, Freddie, today's excursion is taking us deep into uh, the jungle, uh, into the weeds of uh, the disciplines that get me really excited because it's what we uh, we live to do here, uh, the worlds of architecture and show set design. Uh, our guest today is Kevin Sherbrooke. Uh, he's an AIA licensed architect and show set designer uh, who understands the intersection of creative, blue sky, and limiting structure of architectural design. And I can't believe it's taken us this long to actually hit on architecture. Right. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's we've got about uh, a dozen nationally licensed architects in-house here, and uh, they've been waiting in the wings to hear us talk about their favorite <laughs> subject. Uh, Kevin's background gives him a unique perspective on the ups and downs and ins and outs of an industry on the move. He's been involved with the creation of attractions and environments at parks like Epcot, Animal Kingdom, and Universal's Islands of Adventure. Uh, he's also worked on projects with some of the industry's current heads of states, like Scott Trowbridge and Mark Woodbury. Well, we're really glad to get some time with Kevin between projects to talk through his experience and share that insight with you, our listeners. All right, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Well, Mel, we've been doing this podcast for a little over a year. Um, I think this episode's going to drop after just about a year after we got this whole thing started. And uh, it was a pretty fun idea to get it started with. I think uh, you uh, I think you brought it up, said, hey, I'd just love to do a podcast. We started talking through the ideas of what it would be. And uh, we had big, big plans, big ideas for this. You know, you first start talking about a podcast, you're like, we'll do it once a week. We'll be together. <laughs> we can do, uh, have all these guests. We listed all the different people that uh, we know in the industry. You brought out your uh, little black book to um, talk through the people that you've worked with. And we're like, wow, this will be really great. But then the reality set in and we realized we were going to have to find spots on our schedule to um, get together in remote places uh, uh, around the country even we've done these uh, mean day jobs yeah well, we've got our day <laughs> jobs fit to fit that in. In too? yeah um i mean it's just the reality sets in so um you know ideas are great but then you gotta make them a reality well, yeah, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, I'm actually getting ready to speak at a, a conference called the Ideation Conference, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's one thing to have a bunch of ideas to wake up in the morning with that great idea. It's a completely different thing to execute and implement yeah. and to uh, engineer those uh, that imagination. And and uh, you know, again, I think um, the, this podcast is a great example of um, uh, you know if something's a passion of yours. Um, you know, it's one thing to call it a passion, but it's something else to, to actually create the margin, 
create right. the time, have some of the discipline, pull in some of the resources to actually uh, pull it off. I can't believe it's been a year. That, oh, that blows goodness. me away. Yeah, I know. Really, really has been got a, um, a big thing for us. And when we talk about ideas, oftentimes we talk about it um, in the blue sky process. Uh, the idea of uh, getting together and just uh, throwing ideas up against the blue sky and and seeing what we can go after. Um, uh, giving yourselves no limits. I was introduced to that a little bit at Disney when I had an opportunity to go um, be part of a blue sky process for a project I was working on. Um, and then when uh, I first met you uh, with regard to the to uh, Poverty Encounter, the attraction at Children's Hunger Fund, the walkthrough um, uh, experience of what poverty is like in places around the world. You took me through the blue, blue sky process. You took me and the people at Children's Hunger Fund through that. Like, hey, what are your best ideas? And, and some great ideas came out of that. Um, but uh, the fun of blue sky eventually has to be um, paired with the creativity and um, the limitations, but also the structure, um, the the needed structure of architecture and show set design to bring it to life. Well, for us, you know, it's actually an interesting dance because um, we actually think part of the fun of Blue Sky, uh, when you have the right people at the table, is bringing the folks that um, aren't necessarily trying to box in the big idea, but but have that kind of uh, expertise mm-hmm. and again the brain damage that they've incurred over the decades. The, the they know the rules of thumbs. They they know the the realities to to have that fine balance of kind of. Uh, you know, shaping it in a way that that absolutely accelerates um, whatever seed or kernel of of creative big ideas are there, but but also um, accelerates it by bringing it into reality sooner rather than later by mm. shaping it, uh, you know, quickly into something that is uh, doable. And um, and again, architects can absolutely be part of that equation. They don't have to necessarily be limited, but it has to be the right architect because that yeah. is not, <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely some different personality types and, and different folks that probably should have really been engineers or stayed mm-hmm. on the, the CAD draftsman you know, floor. Uh, but uh, again, the, the right folks with the right background and expertise can absolutely add to that creative energy of yeah. a blue sky. Yeah, that's right. Well, that brings me to our guest today, Kevin Sherbrooke. Uh, he's an uh, architect, uh, show set designer. Uh, he's get done a ton of projects in his career. Um, he's, and it's fun because, he's, like a lot of folks we meet, he's a fan first and a bit of a pioneer, being one of the early adopters of computer modeling for architectural design um, way, way, way back when. Um, yeah, a lot of folks that, you know, aren't in, involved with the design documentation, you know, yeah. disciplines or process, uh, you know, they, they hear the word CAD, you know, yeah. computer assisted drafting. <laughs> it sounds so, you know, high tech. Uh, the reality is, you know, the, Mr. Brady used to sit at his drafting table <laughs> in the family den, you know, with the pencil and the T-bar and, you know, draw these, uh, you know, two dimensional uh, line drawings. And <laughs> uh, and then all CAD did was, uh, you know, it, it let people erase quicker and, and sped yeah. sp- that process up of cutting and pasting and um, but the reality is those drawings were still not very intelligent and essentially you know over the last you know decade plus um, most of the industry uh, including our firm we've entered the the matrix of the third dimension by uh, entering into the space that's uh, kind of uh, called building information modeling where we're basically virtually building these buildings in digital space and 
Um, again, I don't want to bore anyone with the details, but uh, again, <laughs> that's Kevin's what we're also here for. <laughs> another early adopter. And, um, you know, we get excited about uh, not just uh, being able to visualize space for presentations and eye candy, but again, uh, to really be able to work that space out uh, with all the different disciplines and coordinate. And it really helps avoid a lot of the errors and omissions right. and conflicts that uh, plagued uh, that, that older uh, wave of two-dimensional documentation. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, uh, let me tell you a little bit more about Kevin as we go in. Um, I he, he worked for WDI for a while, uh, working on Epcot Interventions. We're going to talk a little bit about his uh, work at Tokyo Disney Sea with Stormrider, Aquatopia, Universal. He, um, he's got a pretty cool story about Islands of Adventure and got to work on things like the Hulk ride and the Spider-Man ride, which still like kind of stands out as one of the ultimate uh, great theme park rides out there. And of course, around the world doing stuff with Mirage Dubai, the Motion Gate uh, parks in Bollywood, just, just all around Dude's been around the block. Yeah, he's done some stuff. So let's get the party started and head up to the Blue Sky Loft at Storyland Studios for our interview with Kevin Sherbrooke. Well, we're, here we are with Kevin Sherbrooke. This is great. So glad to have you. It's been a little while as we've tried to coordinate this, but we're really glad to have you. Great. Hi, guys. Thanks for inviting me out here to Storyland Studios. It looks like a really great place to work and I'm already running into people I know. So I know. I'm so excited cool. to be here. Yeah, we've, uh, we've loved having Kevin as kind of a almost an extended member of our uh, architecture team as we uh, ramp up. Um, but actually, I just realized this is our first show that uh, has a specific uh, topical focus on architecture, show set design. Um, you know, we, we've, we've stayed in blue sky concept land for a long time, and I know that uh, you've had plenty of experience in that, but uh, I'm really excited to kind of uh, share some of that uh, the that brain damage and insight that you had with a few few good, decades good, yeah. in the industry. I'd love to start with just uh, getting to know how you got into the industry. We were talking about it before, right. and it's uh, it's just kind of a, a everybody has a different story. Yeah, and uh, so how did how did you kind of get roped in? Um, and I definitely want to hear about the traffic between wherever you live and downtown. LA, yeah, so. yeah. Well, it, I mean, it goes back early to childhood, and I, I mentioned that in the letter there, but. Um, I've been drawing since I've been 10 years old. My dad was an engineer and he'd come home from work and he'd have a pad and he'd have all the mechanical pencils and I would start drawing with him as he was doing his engineering calculations for work. That's where it kind of started, me drawing roller coasters and wacky designs for, you know, never thinking I was going to be a theme park designer. But that kind of grew. I, I was 10 blocks from the, uh, the pier in Santa Monica. That's where I grew up. So constantly going out of the pier with my mom and hanging out down there, I always had that vibe of a theme park. So early on in my subconscious, if you will, I had, you know, uh, an inkling to have fun and get out in the beautiful air and enjoy, you know, a ride or two. So that grew a few years later. I was probably about 12 when um, an uncle... Uh, Fortuna, he actually lived in the same building, would come down and my parents would allow him to take me to uh, various theme parks, like Beverly Center. Or he took me to the, this is going back to like 1970s, uh, took me down to the Long Beach Pier. And some of those memories were so vivid, like uh, unbelievable, like it just in your subconscious, you dream about it. And I still <laughs> never true. thought I could be an architect or a theme park designer. You know, went to school for psychology for a couple of years, UCLA. 
my alma mater and uh, eventually started to move more into design. I, worked, I ended up doing architectural design at UCLA. Still thinking I'm just going to be Main Street architect. I started with residential, uh, commercial, restaurants. And then I got the first call from WDI. And that call, I was actually working downtown Los Angeles. I was about 25 years old. Um, had never worked for a theme park company or know anybody in the industry. Kind of dreamed about it. But I got the call and, and you know, my hair stood up like, <laughs> Walt Disney's calling for me? Really? So I'm not sure how they got... From the grave. <laughs> yeah. It was a good company. I was working for r and Interplan. But I was designing, you know, basically bus stations and fighting the commute every day <laughs> from Van Nuys to downtown. It was oh, a gruel. And I was not, you know, I still to this day, I'll go to downtown for meetings, but I don't want to be there, you know, every day. That's a little pet peeve I have. I'll go horizontal in traffic, but not vertical. That's <laughs> my rule. Uh, but no, it was the first call to do the Epcot Center Interventions Project. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it was a really... Barry Braverman's uh, claim to fame. There. That's right. Barry Braverman, <laughs> Andy Sackler, some of the key people I met. And they put me up in a giant warehouse down on Chastain Street. And I was there for about a year. By my lonely, I mean, I would go over to the the main flower building to meet with show producers and art directors, but was doing a lot of production work for them on interventions. And uh, Gary Williams was the lead uh, architecture. I was working for the architecture group for starters. And I did a good job on that. And one funny story I mentioned, Yamel, was um, there was one point where the construction was starting. I did the restaurant facades and things. And the whole team of show producers and art directors, oh, we have to go to Orlando to see the project and everything. And I'm, I'm sitting there like, well, what about me? You know, I yeah. want to go with you guys. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I kind of asked, but I didn't push it. You know, I was still trying to be a nice guy. And I ended up buying my own ticket, flying down there. I didn't meet with them, but it was my first experience at Disney World. And you think Disneyland is big. My dad took me to Disneyland, of course, as a kid. And that was another, you know, I had the tickets and everything. And you know, I could go on 1D ticket attraction or 1E. <laughs> but going to Disney World was like, that was a big shocker to me. Like, oh my God, this is huge. This is a business like none other. And I would love to be, keep continuing it. And I came back, you know, about a week later, and I was standing like a Motel 6, you know, I didn't have a lot of money and everything. But, uh, you know, I'd taken the shuttle buses around and everything. But uh, my bosses were so impressed that I would go that extra yard to, you know, make it a point to see what, where and what I was actually working on. I felt it important. And they said, okay, Kevin, we're going to get you onto some other projects. So, you know, working at WDI, I had to sometimes go around to show producers to get the next gig because your gigs are over, maybe once 10 weeks. So as a theme park designer, you kind of have to work in that mentality of, hey, this may not be a lifetime job at this company A, you know, I might, have 10 weeks on this project and you have to focus and you hit those deadlines. So, but that led to Animal Kingdom work and uh, Restaurantosaurus and Dino Land and oh, yeah. the ride. So that, that's kind of the first intro of how I got in. Well, I, I'm fascinated with that interventions kind of extreme makeover. Um, and I think it, it's interesting because it almost parallels kind of the, the direction that you went where um, you, you kind of inherited in that case, these large bulky architecture buildings. You weren't necessarily adding a bunch of square footage, but that, the idea of this design intervention where, you know, the, the integration with environmental graphics, almost influenced by the 84 Olympics, you know, that whole exactly. postmodern uh, kind of kitsch, you know, thing of yeah. hypergraphics and area development and landscape architecture and mm-hmm. kinetics and shade sales. Uh, what did you learn about um, kind of the, the elements of the project that weren't just 
form follows function architecture, you know, that exactly. you layering all those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you hit it a nail on the head. I would say in that as working on these types of theme park projects, it's beyond architecture. I call it, it's like multidimensional. You have to take in and work closely with graphic people. You know, a lot of the building was graphics, pure graphics. The uh, signage going to the buildings was this sculptural kinetic formwork that integrated multi-layer graphics. And then you're right, the landscape. So traditional architects deal with your structural engineer, your electrical engineer, your mechanical engineer, maybe a landscape architect. But then you go to a WDI and you're dealing with 15 different groups, everything from special effects people to show producers to art directors to colorists to, you know, like you say, landscape people talking about botany and how am I going to irrigate my plants in front of your building? How's the shade going to hit it? So you try to work with all these people to come up with something that's very cohesive. And, and that can be challenging. It, it's multi-layers that you learn. Show lighting, for instance. I, I knew nothing about show lighting before. It was just general lighting. So all of these things. And then sound and creating, you know, you learn on a dark ride, you know, how to control sound and sound rooms and beats and sound attenuation through walls. There's a lot of acoustical factors that go into a show production. So I know whenever we uh, kind of hire a new architect, um, the, the first step in our uh, kind of uh, brainwashing process of, uh, of ODing them on the pixie dust and kind of <laughs> put, dropping them into this uh, this world of experiential storytelling is is kind of almost de-architecting them and, and almost knocking them off the pedestal of the the master supreme builder, yeah. uh, capital A licensed architect. And just, just understanding the role oh, in, yeah. in a team where, you know, at Imagineering, you had 140 disciplines. Um, and even with, within Storyland, we have that dozen disciplines or so in-house and, and it, it's just so cool when you see how one plus one equals three when all the different disciplines uh, kind of work together um, but for you uh, Kevin I mean it, really the start and a transition from uh, again a, a, a uh, I guess a facility commercial architect. Could you kind of help our listeners that don't necessarily, you know, uh, know uh, kind of the underhood, you know, how those break down in terms of your the the disciplines you really have become an expert in in terms right. of show set uh, design. Well, um, I wouldn't say expert. I mean, everyone <laughs> calls themselves an expert. Everyone says they design the well, old attraction. But you, you said it right. You it's, get to be a guru. <laughs> it's te- it's teamwork, and it's it's like taking off. You know, I'm an AI licensed master degree in architecture, but I take creed and everybody's opinion mm-hmm. and listening, you know, and, and the power hierarchy is, is often different. I mean, you've know, got show producers, you've got clients, IP people that are spending a lot of money and they want it to look the way they want it to look as it's not, I'm not going to go and design a building to look like, you know, what I would, you know, a lot of times the facility architect in architect in theme park, the buildings are sometimes very convoluted looking things to adapt a show into them. You know, it's so that was one thing I did learn is, you know, working in both show set and architecture, there's, there's a big difference. Um, Can you mind explaining uh, and defining that? A yeah, bit? yeah. So a lot of times they call a facility design manager or a facilities architect or some of the big roles, you'd, titles you'd get in, in, in the business. And a lot of times it's really dealing with the shell and core of a large attraction box. It's, it could be as simple as tilt-up construction or concrete walls, or you're dealing a lot with large span trusses for show spaces and th- th- that could be different than a normal building. But when I first started, I thought, oh, the architect is gonna do all the theme facades and he's gonna do all the shows inside and everything, but no, that's a whole different team. So that's the show set team. 
And I've worked on both, and I like both. Um, there's also what's called a theme facade, which, you know, take, for instance, a project we're on Hotel Transylvania. That was heavily rock work on the theme, and it was meant to look like Hotel T in the, in the animated feature. And we had to go in and create things like artificial perspectives and scale. So as, as buildings step up on a uh, theme facade, sometimes you'll make things a little bit smaller. And Disney does this down Main Street. Uh, you know, and, and you can do this to, to fool the, the viewer into thinking that buildings are much bigger than they are because your budget's only so big. And um, so you can do that with windows and dressings and windows. But a lot of those theatrics that go on the outside of the architectural shell are developed by a show set designer. Um, the internal pieces, obviously, you'll put together show set packages. And those will start with the story. The story is so important. As you know, it's story land. Um, that if the story isn't solid and you're just creating you know, gizmos and things, you'll see those at, at uh, some theme parts, then it won't be a great ride. You need beats. You need you know, scene one through scene eight. And you need to start off with something big and have a big finale at the end. I'm not a, you know, a show writer, but I'm just going to tell you a hint of what I've seen. And those packages you know, are often involve uh, show props. They can be static. They can be animated. You know, if the arms are going up and down. They can be talking. Or if you want to spend a fortune, you can do Pirates of the Caribbean and you know, have, yeah. have the pirates you know, fighting each other with uh, amazing projection mapping and things that they're doing now. But, um, and also, you know, you're, as, a, as a facility architect, you're having to deal with, if, if it's a ride system in the building, you have to think about all those pits, where the speakers are going to go, coordinate all of the animatronics, all of these power locations, all of the HVAC ductwork around so you don't see them. Nobody wants to see an exit sign. We want to hide the exit sign. You know, it's a little bit different. Whereas in a regular building, it'd be like, where's all the exit signs? But um, no, and controlling lighting and sound and all of these engineering factors, it's really critical. So I work with like uh, different groups that are top engineers in the field that do, you know, control rooms with lots of computers that have to be cooled to a certain temperature that control all the animatronics. It gets very tricky and complicated, but I love it. It's great. Uh, if that answers your question, it's a start. Now you're creating spaces that are beyond um, what we think is the u normal use. I mean, the the... Um, the guest sees what you want them to see. The uh, technicians and the um, all the equipment needs its own space. Yeah, There's it's an art of illusion. Yeah, yeah. And you really, um, it, actually, uh, yesterday I was at Disneyland, and uh, one in our party had to go to the restroom before getting on Star Tours. <laughs> right. And there was a series of pathways that gets you from there to a restroom that I didn't know existed at Disneyland. That took this young lady all the way through, and all of that. There's regress, there's and and everything right. that your um, your actions are helping to um, make possible. Isn't that true? Yeah, good point. You know, um, operations, operations, highly critical for any kind of attraction. I spend more time designing the queue lines for some of these big attractions than I do actually doing the theme spaces mm -hmm. when I'm doing the architecture. Oh, people spend more time in those. Yeah, <laughs> and they're, they're slowly realizing you should make the, the pre-show, the right. queue, whether it's a digital held device in your phone, more interactive, because you're going to be in that queue for an hour. To, I waited three hours to get on Pandora yeah, that was right. last year, and it was incredible. But it was still a great experience because they thought through and gave you a lead up to the actual show. But like I say, nowadays they've got you know fast pass, they've got VIP lines, they've got regular guests, they've got overflow guests, they've got peak day guest queue lines, and you have to plan, plan all plus this out. single rider, every all these bypasses. Right. 
Right. And, 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 and just, you know, the operational staff, how many people are going to have to hire, where they're going to be located, how are you going to flow people to the exit uh, shop so that they purchase more merchandise, higher revenue generation. There's all of these things Even going to the design. Before you get to design all right. the, the programming, the, the space, we call it spatial scripting, but all the architectural programming, space right. programming, understanding those needs. and Yeah, I mean, 30%, maybe 40% of the internal attraction that you never see as a guest can be for anything from HVAC rooms to control room racks, to, you know, getting uh, attendees to get around to different parts, getting people out of the building. Where do, you, where do you work on the ride if it breaks down? Do you have to have a special off room, you know, to get a crane in the building, to get it out of the building? All those kind of factors and considerations exiting. I mean, I have to do, when I'm doing facility design, critically, you got hundreds of people in a building. If there's a fire, you have to design your exiting so that they can get out of there and not disrupt you know, the illusion of the, the ride, you know, so that's, that can be challenging as well. Wow. Yeah, I was, uh, I was at the 2010, um, Shanghai world expo and, uh, I was, uh, you know, it was the site of probably the largest gathering in human history. I think almost 70 million people attended over six months on a site that was, uh, I think 10 times the size of Epcot center. Uh, but the one thing that I learned, uh, was that, uh, things like, uh, Ingress, egress, uh, industrial engineering, these are not about guest experience and, and convenience and, you know, issues. These are life and death. Yeah. I mean, I saw people getting crushed, people getting separated from their kids. I mean, grandmas. And, I mean, it was just horrific uh, what what can happen if that's not uh, understood and done right by, by folks. And again, what's cool about you, Kevin, is someone that can get as passionate about the creative, you know, blue sky elements right. and being true to, you know, the original story and IP world of, of uh, Hotel Transylvania, as well as kind of making sure it actually works, you know, with uh, the, the, the technical requirements. Yeah, you know, the show set packages, I didn't talk too much about them, but they're a little bit different than the architecture. You know, you're, you, you're typically you'll have a, a scene, say, scene one, and it'll have 10 to 15 props and it'll have an animated prop. Maybe it'll have a big blimp or an airplane in the room. And you need to document that for a scenic house like Storyland to Fabricate. Um, and you need to work with the people on the floor. Like I, I've worked for Acme Made in America Studios uh, and I, it was just a summer job, but I learned so much about, you know, it's not just a show set drawing because sometimes you guys have to do a whole fabrication drawing after the show set drawing is done. And, but it's understanding the materials and what kind of special effects you can put in it, you know, what your budget allocation, like I didn't know a static prop is $4,000 and have an animated prop this big is, you know, $20,000. Yeah. And so as a show producer, you have to be aware of these things to design a show that's worthy of the IP, but putting together the package typically of a show set, you've got, you know, 25 elements say, and you're, you're laying out your scene. So you've got a floor plan. Sometimes you'll have an elevated floor for the, for the guests. So they're, they're not looking down at the straight floor. It looks a little bit like you're more immersed in the scene. And then you're going to have backdrops. You can have scenic psych walls, we call them. So it looks like a painterly sky or something like that. Yeah. We did that at DreamWorks. And um, special hidden lighting in there so that, you know, so the show set designer is coordinating a lot of the, maybe it's a misting effect. You want to create a fog that you go through as the ride, or maybe it's a big wow moment. I love the, the idea of a wow moment, you know, uh, during the show. And something will happen. Maybe some show doors open and a, a Jurassic dinosaur head comes through it or something like this. And, and you need to document all that with your, your different departments at a place like WDI or, or Universal. And um, oftentimes that involves, you know, describing the movement or showing the movement in multiple 
drawings to see how maybe the hand is waving or what, what's going on. And then there's a lot of keying in Chausset drawings, whether it's, you know, we'll have a different symbol. So one could be for a Chausset piece. One could be for a speaker. One could be for uh, a lighting effect. You yeah. know? And so there's all these tags, something like 20 tags, and they'll have like FX1 will be special effects one. And they'll be FX1 through 30. And it gets real technical and you list out everything. And that goes back to a, a prop sheet that then they can calculate the cost of all of these elements and coordinate the purchasing. Because oftentimes these overseas projects will require someone like you to categorize, build everything, box it up, ship it over there, send a couple of guys to install it and yeah. certify it, you know, because we're the show people in Los Angeles and Pasadena. Yeah. Not everyone can do this. And that's why it's really special to live here. Yeah, that's if you want to do this. <laughs> that's true. I like to think that our audience is, uh, for the Themed Attraction podcast, is three people, three different types of people. The first one is theme park fans. Where's my pass holders at? Um, so I always thought there was just two people out there. It really there's, is. There's no. a third person? Yeah, there's a third person. Wow. It's not hey, just you hey, and me, Mel. Mel and I. Mel and I listen to the show. No, uh, I'd like to meet this third person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So so perhaps there's one person out there with three qualities. Um, they're, uh, they're theme park fans that right. love to talk about the theme parks. Then there's the uh, industry folks who are quite aware. They're, they go to IAPA, they go to the TEA Summit. They're um, right. totally tied in and know, they're career folks. Business development and all that, yeah. And then there's the um, the college student or um, 20-something who's trying to find a career in this industry. Right. But all they can think about is, well, there's there's really two or three places to go. You can go and try and get a job at Disney, try and get a job at um, Universal, try and get a job at Six Flags. Who knows what they can, that's right. all they can picture. But this right. industry is so broad, what with all the family fund centers. That's it. Um, yeah, and, and then um, there's, there's, IPs and uh, projects going in this world right now all over the place. Everywhere. And I, Hundreds I'm of just, theme parks all over the world. I'm looking at your list, Warner Brothers Dubai, um, your uh, all, places all over the world um, that just continue to sort of open my mind even that this this is not just limited to those ones that people are immediately thinking of. So um, it, it fascinates me that you uh, have to go to these places visit them, think about them and bring that knowledge back to, like you said, Pasadena, Los Angeles and create right. something that's going to be exported. Tell me a little bit more about that. I yeah. I mean, we talked about, you know, there's different tiers of theme park design and I, I hope to glean from this conversation that anybody that's young out there that loves theme parks and, and, you know, doodles around with drawings or uh, roller coaster tycoon, like my son builds theme parks with me all the time for fun. You know, there, there are avenues. And I initially started thinking, you know, the door was closed at Disney, but you know, there, it's project based and there's this whole other realm of companies out there. If you look hard enough, if you start going to some, you know, meet and greet, I did a meet and greet the other day for BRPH here in, in Glendale. And it was, it was great. All these kids came in with their resumes, kids. I mean, they're college graduates, you know, somewhere from USC, some from UCLA, and they're really ambitious and looking for work. And, um, you know, they, if you start to meet and greet all these different people and network with great people like Mel, you maybe he doesn't have a job for you today, but he'll know maybe like a Larry Wyatt or somebody else that, you know, it, it's a small network of people. It seems like it, but it's weird. Like when you're not working for Universal Disney, you're in these smaller companies. I don't want to call them B companies because I've had great experiences That's with right. them. Um, 
But you start to network with people and I can pick up the phone and say, you know, my project is done and you know of anything else. And, you know, maybe take a couple of weeks, but meet people, get your name out there, work on your LinkedIn and um, start to look for some of these other smaller companies. Just theme park design. And you know, there's probably 50 of them in L.A. That I'd love to get yeah. your unique perspective of having, again, worked at Disney, having worked at, directly mm-hmm. at Universal. Right. Uh, and. We'll go back to some of that fun stuff, but okay. you know, comparing that to uh, the small to medium sized firms where you've been able to go, kind of more blue sky to building, dream to right. dedication day. Uh, that's something that we particularly you know enjoy is, yes. is having some of the same team members that are involved with the blue sky to then be on site doing field art direction a few years later, uh, and to have that continuity as opposed to uh, completely handing it off and and and. Well, I love that idea. I mean, original vision. One of the things I really Really want to be able to do in, with my career is not just to design, but to see it through and, and to see it fabricated and to see it constructed. So that the Motion Gate project I mentioned to you was that kind of broad experience, probably the broadest, you know, bird's eye view, starting from Blue Sky, working with Terry Palmer, Brad Bivin, Seth Cover, all the guys at what was Riva, now Maiku. Um, you know, we, we all came together. I, it, w- it wasn't even a company. And we came together and started, I started there when there was five people. And within a year, we grew to like 80 to 100 people, five show producers. You, you saw the morphosis of it happen. And, and you knew that the funding was there. The client was there. It was very serious. And it wasn't like a Disney project that can go for a year. Uh, they're probably shorter time now. I think it's six months they've gotten it down to. But um, just on that side of it, it was much more rewarding to see things fabricated. And I follow um, Theme Park X, which is a construction website mm-hmm. where I get to see everything that I designed two years ago getting built today, like in Universal yeah, Beijing. Right, I'm sure. seeing all these buildings still under India um, getting fabricated. So that is very rewarding to me. Um, to see large construction pieces. Sometimes the shows don't come off the way you dream them to be, but what my first point would be is you've got to have a thick skin to be in the theme park business. Meaning, you might design nine or 10 projects through schematic, none of them which gets built, because there's a lot of ambitious people out there in the world, trust me, and they will put up, whether it's $10,000 or $100,000 to design a, a schematic package, and then they realize, oh, this park is gonna cost $685 million, which is actually cheap compared to some of the Disney things, but they can't do it, and, and, and the projects die, and I've seen so many of them die, and it's not because you're not a good designer, it's just because of funding. Yeah. So you see that on the B level. When you go into a Disney or Universal, most of the things that you design, you know are gonna get built. It's very serious. You're working with top engineers, day one, you know, after, after schematic, and um, they do take, they tend to take longer. There's, there's more, I'm not going to call it politics, but there's just more. A lot of layers of internal. A lot of layers of IP and, and uh, corporate, you know, approval. I remember, you know, we would work sometimes for six months on and big Peter Eisner's coming to view your project. And everyone's like shaking in their boots, whether it's going to get, you know, thumb up or thumb down. You know, it was almost like Spartacus. Um, <laughs> and, and most of them got through, but then uh, some of them were, you'd come That's in on Monday. hybrid of Michael Eisner, Peter Romo. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was right during that time and and uh, there was a whole they, they they snuck us over to another building one time they 
we weren't supposed to be working on the campus. And it was all kinds of top secret things going on. But um, yeah, and, and sometimes they get what the term is shelved in the project, you know, whether it's funding or whether they're not ready for it in, in Anaheim or Florida, you know, it'll get shelved. So there's a little bit of that. And, and also, like I said, what I noticed on those projects is sometimes you have to, when your project is over, go around and meet some of the other show producers that you know, you know, Marvel's coming or Star Wars is coming and, and introduce yourself and say, look, this is what I did on this project at Interventions or, you know, I've worked on a few of them. But it was a little bit more of that. But it was it was great. I mean, they've got obviously some of the top talent, Universal and, and Disney that... Um, you can get, but when you're working for, I'll call them again, the B companies, it's the same people that are just not working there at the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I worked at Universal and you know, I've worked at Disney two times and Universal a couple of times and I'll probably go back at some point for some, some things, but uh, you know, it's the same people. I mean, yeah, there are small, the 30 year people. Try. It's a small cruise ship for it all of Yeah, it is. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit StorylandStudios.com or call now. 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. Um, you know, you've worked on projects at vastly different, you know, scales. When, again, mm -hmm. when I think of a, a design intervention overlay like the, the Epcot Interventions Plaza versus even like a... Uh, you know, it was interesting when California Adventure 1.0 was happening uh, at the same time that Disney Seas, you know, was happening for, you know, a, right. a multiple X factor of cost per square foot. Uh, any insights that uh, you've gleaned over the years in terms of designing towards a budget or on budget and, oh, and yeah. kind of pulling off the, the intended effect? Again, from, you know, a, again, a motion gate, Bollywood, uh, sure. you know, to like some of these world-class IP. That, uh, yeah, I mean, for instance, you know, something like Indiana Jones. I mean, I heard at the time it was $100 million and ended up 120 mm -hmm. And something in Dubai, you know, for like a Hotel Transylvania or Ghostbusters was more than like $25 million, you know, so that's the budget. So, yeah, I've learned over the years that buildings are expensive and, that, and construction costs are very expensive in different parts of the world. You can build twice as much stuff in China for half the cost because the labor's so cheap there in the theme park construction business. And what one trick that I've learned, and, and Universal's doing this now as well on some of the Beijing projects, is the back of house, you know, the big e-ticket attraction doesn't have to be, you know, the Taj Mahal. It can be a butler building, a pre-engineered yeah. building that costs a million five as opposed to if you built that from scratch and everything, it would be five million dollars. So a lot of those facility costs can be saved. Um, and then you can do things like lead or energy saving, you know, mechanics within the building to save, you know, that's become real prevalent and, and 
code required nowadays when you get to that level. Um, but put the money in the show. Don't put it in the box. And a lot of countries or companies or what do you call them will waste a lot of money. And they'll realize, because they try to phase it, that they'll be, they'll be digging year one. The buildings will all be going up year two. And then the shows will come in year three and they're out of money. You know, they yeah. can't afford. And that's what you're saying, paying to what, see. What good's a beautiful theater <laughs> if you don't have money to, to actually put on the show? Yeah, actually, that's right. You know, create a, create a set and hire actors and put on a show. So Yeah, I really like that. Uh, put the money in the show, not in the show. There's a lot of exciting things happening with projection lighting too nowadays. Like for interiors of shows, you can do very simple, like the DreamWorks Theater I worked on up here at Universal Studios. You can do a lot of projection mapping to make very simple, plain drywall, white right. surfaces look like they're made out of gold and jewels and everything. And, right. and you can really fool the audience. Um, just That's just one little technique that you could do. But um, I, you know, I, I work with cost estimators like Cumming, and they are hypercritical people to be friends with and to know in the industry because they know where the projects are before anyone else does because uh, they're, they're you know, finding out if it's feasibility studies or whatnot. And then they're also, you know, working side by side them. They can tell you a theme facade, whether it's a grade level one that costs 200 bucks a square foot, or if it's a grade level three that costs $500 a square foot. And that can save you. Put the money where you want, you know. And oftentimes it is looking through the, the props list and, the, and the, the estimation list to see where you can save money. Mm. But obviously a base building, you can build them different ways. It can be steel columns, concrete columns. You know, you can save money with trusses, tilt-up construction. There's a lot of different techniques that we look at all the time on these projects to... Um, to try to keep the cost down because they can get out of control quickly. And a lot of money goes into infrastructure. You wouldn't believe. I mean, on a big theme park, there's fiber optic, you know, piping hubs that go underneath all of these attractions that all the POS stations talk to each other. There's giant, you know, cooling stations that cool all the buildings. I mean, huge amounts of wiring and cabling that nobody really factors in when they're new to the business that eats up 30, 40% of your budget before wow. you even get to the show. So thinking, like Terry told me that, you know, why don't we move these buildings in just, you know, 10 feet, and we'll save $100,000 just on the wiring and piping alone. I was like, really? So we, we made big moves like that. Just And that, that's from just pure experience. He knew that. So. Yeah. Yeah, Terry's quite a quite a guru. He's uh, we, we're going to have to get him in here. Oh, that'd be sooner super. Sooner later, we've had some great collaborations. Um, you know, on the... You've, you've worked with just about every major large scale, um, especially studio based uh, project from uh, Universal Islands of Adventure to Universal Beijing to Walt Disney Studios Paris to right. Motion Gate. Um, I was just curious on your take at a high level on kind of the compare contrast between um, kind of Disney, Universal, some of these mm -hmm. independent, uh, you know, like MotionGate, you know, where it's a kind of a hybrid of all these different right. IPs. Do you, do you have a, any kind of thoughts from on high of having, uh, look, looking back at the yeah, We just say be, be flexible, you know, when you're, uh, oftentimes you go into a job that you don't think is going to be very much. I mean, when I walked into to, to, to Reva for the MotionGate project, it was just an empty warehouse with a couple of kids in there. And I thought, I said to the secretary, she was sitting at a folding table. We didn't even have a network. <laughs> and it was just unbelievable. And, you know, you go to a, a universal or something, you got, the whole thing is all network. The IT guys are helping you. You got your own server station. Everything's all the latest software. You know, on a, on a project, like that, sometimes you have to put together your own kit of tools to, to go. 
And um, but be flexible and don't think that if I can't get a Disney job or Universal job, you can still get these other jobs to start and get your teeth into the industry and start to learn who people are. And then you eventually, if you're good enough, you will make it to the bigger thing. But uh, it's a little bit more intimidating, I think, just in general, you know, going to Disney every day, you're up at, you know, you're always there at eight o'clock and a little bit more flexible than the other ones. You know, I could work, you know, 10 to four, work some at night. You know, it's a little bit more personal bull on the smaller firms, whereas maybe you're not talking to a studio executive and universal, although I did get to work with Mark Woodbury directly. So kudos yeah, to me on that. that. That's a, that, that was, was it was funny. I worked on Islands of Adventure and um, I was actually working at both WDI and Universal at the same time. And wow. I had to sign NDAs for both. Uh, it was a <laughs> night gig. I started on the Superhero Island with uh, Jerry Parra. He's a good friend of mine. And Gene Nolman and Adrian Gordon and, and, and Dennis. And we um, we started, you know, with comic books. Get this, and you're trying to develop theme facades out of comic books. And Mark, you know, he wasn't a big shot back then, but he came and he'd come down and just kind of check. He was still kind of the head of the whole department, but he would meet with the bigwigs. And then he started noticing I was doing 3D modeling and 3D Max and building all these, you know, dailies for uh, the, the superhero land for Hulk and for Spider-Man attraction. I worked on with Phil Bloom. And, and he came out and he says, okay, Kev, why don't you come down to my office and let's talk about something? And I go, oh, God, okay. So <laughs> went down there. And it wasn't like today. I mean, we're still, he still emails me once in a while. You know, I'm down in Florida. I haven't seen him recently, but he just won the big Thayer Award, right? Yeah. The Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, Congratulations, and, and Mark. It's a, something amazing. There, there's a humility and just like uh, man, yeah. simple man Careful, thoughtful, Very and genuine that um, really comes through from that guy. Yeah, really it didn't cool. seem like the type of guy that would win something like that. But it's, <laughs> I've seen him since developing the genius of Harry Potter and seeing how they tied the parks together. I'm just like, this is like next level stuff. Yeah, this is yeah. incredible. So anyway, he calls me down in the office. He says, listen, we, we, we were doing this Islands Adventure Park. And they, they were working on the main you know, entry into there, the whole kind of piratey looking thing. Adrian was the art director on it. And... Um, they said, can you help us develop, we want a, a weenie, I'll call it a weenie, an icon for the entry to the park, you know, the big Tower of Babel. And I said, sure. And he says, we got this idea, it's the seven wonders of the world. And this is, actually was one, and it fell in the some Babylonian sea or someplace. Yeah, the lighthouse at Alexandria. Alexandria, yeah. right. And he says, we don't want it to look exactly like that, so can you do some variations in your 3D Max, you know, thing? And so I went home, and I spent about a week or two and just developing about four different designs and meeting with him regularly. So that was his one project that he had me do just directly with him and shown it to art directors as well. But he took that with a lot of pride. And I always just remember that as being a really fun project to work on with him. And then when they were getting ready to move down there and relocate to Florida, I ended up going down for about six months with Richard Krent and the retail team. But um, he asked me, he says, can you help us design the um, office building that we're going to, our first office building for implementation, you know, the, the team, the operations group and the administration that's going to build right one, you know, so yeah, sure, no problem. So I, I worked with them directly on that as well. Um, that was great. And then I did get to go. So I was working, Scott Trollbridge, who, you know, is the guru all of Star Wars now that just opened. I'm going next week, by the way. Um, he was he was the show producer on the, uh, and I didn't realize what a big guy he was at the time. I was working under Phil Bloom and, you know, the ride guru, obviously, you guys know him. You got to look him up, Phil Bloom. He does all the big e-ticket attractions out here in Pasadena. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I went to talk to Scott a little bit, and he said, would you be interested in going down and being part of the A-team, you know, starting construction on Islands of Adventure? And I said, you know, I'd never, you know, 
I was born in Florida, but I hadn't been back in you know, 20, 30 years. So I said, okay, let's do it. And I told my soon-to-be wife, Selena, you know, we were dating. I said, do you want to go? You know, all expense, trip paid. So she came down with me, and I was in a little trailer, you know, bulldozers going around me from morning till night. They were building the rivers, you know, that go to connect the hotels and all the bridges and stuff. And it turned out great, and we would go to theme parks and ended up getting married soon after the trip and had our first son. And so that was a really good kind of theme park life yeah. experience that turned into a life-changing event, you know? Yeah. And, uh, lo and so, behold, now uh, graduating <laughs> from uh, UCLA, right? <laughs> kind of a- yeah, actually, today's graduation day. I mentioned that to you. And uh, I, uh, Richard was so much smarter than me going to get into UCLA. He had a 4.3 grade point average. We never thought he'd get in. Wow. And uh, we had to take multiple SATs and everything. And he got in. And he got in all the colleges, but uh, yeah, he's and he's doing thanks cognitive science and artificial intelligence, and he's doing programming and all kinds of stuff that I can't even figure out. It's, That's just, it's beyond me. So it's great to have your own son going to the same college that you did. Well, I got to relive college. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. This is, this is a good day for you. It right? is. First, you get the themed attraction <laughs> podcast, and then your son graduates from college. I mean, this is uh, yeah, I, it's, well, it's amazing to be part of it. Well, I don't need to ask the the normal who's your favorite kid question that everybody. Uh, <laughs> but but I will ask the what's your favorite uh, uh, project that actually got built that uh, you got to have a hand in. Yeah, in it's designing. funny. We we had we were having beer over at, I, at EXP the other day, and all the guys were sitting around the table. It was just like a Friday night thing, and uh, we said, you know, what's your favorite attraction? And it's a great question to ask at a theme park event. And we went back and forth, and it ended up I didn't work on it, but the I think the Pirates of the Caribbean in Shanghai. Has got to be, and yeah. I, I've watched videos. I, I watch stuff on YouTube. There's um, Attractions 360, and there's the other one, the Hyper Resolution 4K one that I watch. And I mean, it's almost like being there. I crank the speakers up. <laughs> but the way they've done, you know, the boat and enhanced it and built upon, you know, the, the traditional Pirates of the Caribbean is just fantastic. But myself, um, you or know. park, favorite attraction or favorite park, because you've worked on so many great parks. Yeah, I mean, I, Spider-Man has got to be, I, I went to, and they just redid the film, you yeah. know. That's got to be one of the, still uh, home run. Mind-blowing, yeah. paradigm shifting. Great, I love yeah. it. It still holds up 20 years later. I, yeah. That was great. I never got to go on the Storm Rider attraction. They just turned it into Nemo. That was probably the heaviest. I did, it was great. Did you? <laughs> I'm okay. sorry, you missed it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you worked on it, never get to go on it. A lot of times you don't get to go on what you ride unless Tokyo you're diehard. Tokyo Disney Seas, Tomorrowland, right? Yeah, I've yet to go to Disney yeah. Seas. i got to get over there. Um, I did get to go to Abu Dhabi, and uh, I haven't been to Motion Gate either. I want to get over there. I was 200 miles from Motion Gate, and I, but there was an embargo at Abu Dhabi. It wouldn't let you in. To, so I forget it. And um, <laughs> But, no, there, there's been so many great attractions. Um, the Hulk was a great coaster attraction. I've worked on some big theater attractions. Um, well, I Hulk. think of that, that tower is the weenie of the century. I mean, that is it's such a great welcome into the, the park. Into the park. It just, yeah. Yeah, it, but that, that coaster interaction, it was uh, kind of a, on Hulk was a pretty major contribution of yours as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, the pre-show and everything, they redid it. I just went um, this last year and they've added a lot of new, really good features, but you know, like the pulsating rings and the operators that pretend, you know, the big buildup for a coaster, I think is great. And then launching you through the tunnel, like you're really getting, Blast. It was like the first launch coaster, I think, ever. And uh, so that was that was great. 
Um, what else? I mean, there's what other attractions are on that list? I can't think of many. I mean, <laughs> on, on Motion Gate, there was the Ghostbusters attractions that you know got to work on it from conception through. You know, we handed it over to Gensler to do the engineering, but I, I got to work with the Gensler team that was doing the final architectural engineering right. and yeah. certifying the drawings to make sure. You know, one of the things I mentioned is keeping design intent. What I mean by that is a lot of times you'll hand over a set of schematic drawings from very talented artists and illustrators, 3D modelers that we work with. And and you'll see these these things come back from architecture firms that look very blocky and bulky and out of proportion. And you right. have to have to be really cognizant of that and redline their drawings. And they don't want to see it because they're not going to get paid twice to fix it. But you have to. I'm very forthright in, in going to a show producer and saying, look, this is not what you guys designed. We should probably try to talk to the principal and get this thing right. And and they will, they'll usually do it, but sometimes it takes four and five tries to get it really tightened up, the doors right. Yeah, it's always frustrating when they've spent hundreds of hours and they're, they're losing information. And it's, it's just yeah. like, stop helping. Like you're going backwards. <laughs> exactly. You know the... Well, this has been a ton of fun, and uh, I'm I'm so glad that uh, we got to have you here today, um, all the way out here in Lake Elsinore. Thanks for coming. It's I know, out here, yeah. yeah. Well, you got you got a big day today, and uh, we're we're so grateful you shared it, some of it with us. Um, any last thoughts, uh, ideas to just leave us with? Well, you know, the you've seen some transitions in the industry from uh, just technology. I mean, the the old days right. of uh, you know probably you, you missed the old hand drafting over the the drawing table phase, oh, yeah. but from two D. CAD, AutoCAD, to uh, stepping into the third dimension of building information modeling and yeah. all the different 3D it's software and visualization tools. Um, has that been a challenge? Has it been uh, good, bad, ugly, fun? You know, oh, as yeah. far as the, the new tools? It's, it's ironic because sometimes you go back and forth. And like last year or this last go, I was doing master planning all by hand. They said, Kevin, we know you can do it all on the computer and AutoCAD. We don't want to see that finished stuff. We want to see it hand-drawn. We want five options yeah. quickly. You know, China client is uh, doesn't know what they want. They want to see lots of options, lots of color and splash. So I do love still going back to that. It's it's that hand brain connection that uh, sketching is just. I just bought a whole new drawing table and pencils and everything just to get back into it some more. But yeah, the one thing I did want to mention is yeah, I, I I was early into 3D modeling at college and everything, and it has evolved and it's still evolving. And what's happening now at Universal and Disney, obviously, it's going to BIM, Building Information Technology Management, and um, Revit. Obviously, is a key program for anybody coming up and wanting to be working in the architecture department. Uh, Showset is still not doing it 100%. It's still mostly hand or digitally drawn with you know with Photoshop and things like that. But it is becoming, I think the next generation, and a lot of that will be, you know, subtly modeled and then incorporated into, because you have to factor that into the building. How are you going to mount and hold all of these show pieces? But I would definitely, I'm, I've struggled a bit with BIM. I was, or with Revit early on, but I've gotten about four years experience now. So I feel pretty proficient on the Beijing project. I worked on about seven buildings all in BIM and, you know, uh, there are challenges. It's new learning because you're you're working in a team environment where five different people. You know, Joe's working on the doorknobs, Fred's working <laughs> on the windows, and you're doing custom family components for this or that, or overseeing the the structural and mechanical systems, which get emailed to you, and you combine. And Navis works, and you see everything conflicting if there's pipes going through walls. Or it's the funniest thing. You'll you'll bring the show producer in, and you'll see the Revit Navis work model, and you'll see 
all, and they're like, what's all the duct work in the middle of my show? Get rid of it, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. you have to deal with that and you see it. So it's very powerful in that respect. But uh, there's still a long way to go with it. Um, I think uh, it's really good for cost estimating, and, and that's the way it's, the future is and, and where I'm focused right now anyway is refining my skills, getting rev- certification professional so that you can get into those groups. And it's it's a different realm. It's like when you're a single architect, you're doing the whole package yourself, getting the permit and everything. But when you're in the Revit world, you're... It's a much more, you know, you're dealing with BIM managers, you're dealing with, you know, changing technologies, updating models. And some of the models could be four or 500 megabytes large. Wow. So com- computer power is very important with these big projects. To, you can do all that. Yeah, it's something we felt important enough to invest in about 15, eight, I don't know, almost 20 years ago. I mean, it was yeah. definitely worth stepping into the matrix of that third dimension for sure. Good. Well, thanks, Kevin, for thanks, uh, sharing these decades of uh, <laughs> experience and insights and uh, have fun at Star Wars Land and the Galaxy's Edge, by the way. I'll try be, to get uh, on. I hear it's tough. Blast. No, yeah. it's, you know what? This is the thing. You're going to you're going to go into that and say, I can't believe how simple this this works. They really did a good job making good. it easy for you to get through. Oh, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I was lined up at Hollywood Boulevard back in the oh, day, in 1975. So that was a big day too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, that's great. Well, great. thank you so much. Thank uh, you, Freddie. Hope Appreciate to have you on again. It. Thank you. Thank you, Mel. Well, do you get the sense that uh, Kevin's been around the globe a few times, put some air <laughs> miles on, and <laughs> has yeah. the, the tire wear marks to show for it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's cool because he sees the big picture of a project, um, and which I think is what uh, a great architect um, and show designer, uh, having that understanding of both angles really helps uh, somebody uh, complete a project with uh, with. With it, avoiding a whole lot of the uh, extra problems that could come up. Yeah, and it, it, a fun thing about Kevin is he actually still draws by hand, and that's oh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's also so cool. kind of a, an increasingly rare uh, special uh, art form uh, in this industry. To, to again have someone that knows all the kind of operational rules of thumb, um, but has you know that kind of artist heart, you know, as well as uh, the technical skills. To take yeah, so, to so we can't we can't discount Mr. Brady. We can't. That's right. <laughs> Mr. Brady's awesome. Permanent all. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Best outfit. Well, Mel, the sun is setting on our little excursion here. Let's spin this boat around and head for home. Until next time. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. Hey, I want to stop for a second right here and just thank you for listening to our show. And thank you to those who uh, have come up to us in person and said, uh, just given us great compliments. It means so much to us to know that uh, this show is either helping you in your career or uh, you're getting inspired by the stories and insights that uh, our guests are able to share. So we can't thank you enough for uh, that encouragement. Would you do us one more thing? Could you go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review for the show? It's a great way to get new people on board with the show so that we can continue doing what we love to do, and that's sharing the show with you. We want to thank our guest, uh, Kevin Sherbrooke. Get in touch with him via his LinkedIn profile. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com, an insider's look at theme park design by theme park designers. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at themedattraction.com. 
Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Mel, Barry's thirst for adventure is unmatched. He recently went to school to get his bush pilot's license. I won't fly with him, though. It was a crash course. Thanks for listening, folks. 